Welcome to uh, the January 24th UPSC. Um, uh, just uh, we have a, we have some new members with us, uh, which we'll introduce when we go into open session. So just uh, to, to help guide with everyone. Hello, Dr. Jamaluddin. Um, I'm going to remind everybody, uh, especially our, our, our new members on this committee, that the convention is to move directly into closed session after roll call. I want to remind everybody that closed session is utilized to discuss confidential matters related to medical staff and credentialing, patient safety, accreditation, or risk management. Therefore, if you're not directly related to one of these discussions, i.e. you don't have anything to discuss with regard to credentialing or, or something that happened in, in one of the patient safety events or accreditation or risk management, we invite you to rejoin us during the open session, which approximately starts at 3 p.m. So with that, uh, uh, let's go to roll call, please. <laughs> Trustee uh, Banerjee. Here. Trustee Buquette. Here. Trustee Chiland is not here. Trustee Hernandez. Here. And Trustee Jensen isn't here, but we do have a quorum. Thank you. With that, we will now move into closed session. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the January 24th, 2019 QPSC. We are in open session. This is a reminder for everyone to use your microphones. It makes it easier, easier for me to document when I listen to this. And uh, we will now uh, move into the consent agenda, item B, one through three. Uh, can I entertain a motion to approve? Wait, I have something to pull if it's about the uh, policies. Are we including that in there? Uh, we'll do the motion and then, and then we'll, and then we'll have motion to approve. Second. Okay. Um, uh, we'll open up for dialogue. Trustee Hernandez. That page. I have a question about the policy around a complaint. And my question is about the sense of urgency around the process for how a complaint is handled. So I wonder if we could talk about it's on page. Let me find it. I'm so sorry. No, no problem. It is uh, yes, sixteen. Thank you. Page sixteen of the ninety-four page packet. Yeah. For those of you who are following. So, I'd like to know if the person is actually in the treating, being treated, and there's a tremendous conflict among the family. The patient. Um, I just wanted to be sure that there's some days here that are included in the total time frame available, and I'm thinking of something very urgent. So, can we distinguish this? Is this something that like is not life-threatening? Is this simply an unhappy person who's not comfortable with something in the room? But it would help me understand how this gets applied. Thank you, Tambir. So, um, do you need a clarification on the question? Yeah, so is it, is it, uh, what is a complaint? Is that potentially the yeah, question? Yeah, but that's, let me go there first. Okay. <laughs> so I think this, uh, uh, the, the primary, so the, what prompted this is a clarification from the Alliance on how we handle grievances. And grievances are either written complaint, so mm -hmm. 
this is certain after a patient has been, you know, left, mm -hmm. and or an unresolved verbal complaint. So the, what prompted the writing of this policy was to create clarity around what is a response time. And there's actually regulations around what that response time has to be in its 30 days. Okay. Now, one of the questions that the Alliance had for us is how, what is the process by which you know you're capturing complaint? And so we have articulated, and more importantly, worked with our ambulatory leaders as well as our, as well as, as well as our operational leaders that those uh, grievance and complaints should be entered into MIDAS so we can track them. And I know that question has come up here in this forum as well. How do we track complaints? Now, complaints should be addressed immediately by the person to whom they're brought. Um, and if, um, and they're usually iterative. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's sort of difficult to explain. But I, I will read the policy again to make sure that it's clear that the intention of this policy is not to say that when a patient has a complaint, you enter it in MIDAS and leave it there. Yeah. But rather that we immediately address the concern. Um, and, and that, I think, is, is the nature of what we have been trying to say about our patient safety work in general, is that if there's a safety issue, the goal is not to enter it into MIDAS. MIDAS is a way of tracking it, but we need to, whoever the clinical team is, they must address this immediately. Does that? It, it oh, helps. Oh, it, it helps. It's just um, maybe, the, and, and I need to be corrected on this, is there a different policy for how, um, you know, a, a, a more urgent situation. safety issues are addressed? Yeah, or, or let's just say the, the family's in disagreement about what's happening in their care. I mean, if, it, if we wait for five days, that might be too much, right? So there may be a different policy around handling that kind of uh, concern, and, and grievance is one thing, but concern for an immediate action is another. So in step, so in procedure, mm -hmm. under step two, mm -hmm. um, on page seventeen, uh, correct, page two of four policy says, for complaints received in a patient care area, every attempt will me be made to resolve the patient or family's concern immediately by staff present through effective service and recovery, listening, empathizing, acknowledging, and providing resolution. Okay. What if you need to elevate that beyond the immediate staff that's right. in the room? So then step three is, if unable to resolve the complaint immediately, the chain of command, and we have a chain okay. of command policy, should be activated to involve the supervisor, manager, director, or designee. And then four is, the immediate supervisor, manager, director, or designee will attempt to resolve the complaint to the patient's satisfaction. And are patients made aware that they have that option? I believe during registration and description of patient rights, that is included. Okay. Is that inside our policy? There is a patient rights okay. policy, yes. Right. Um, so I would want to be very sure that and maybe they're overlapping these two policies uh, or procedures. I'd want to be very sure that patients understand that they have that. So, uh, it's a very important, broader question. I think. Sorry, it's a, it's, a, it's a broader question as it relates 
to uh, what is right on the moment and the policy. And our physicians sometimes, and our nurses as well, when they feel that the policy is not the right thing for the patient at the moment, they escalate. We have an escalation process that escalates to their chiefs, to their chairs, they escalate them. And, you know, I remember, you know, uh, Dr. Baden put me into situations where really the nursing policy is uh, not the best for that moment. And it was like Friday afternoon. Mm -hmm. And then we said, let's go to the bedside. And then we came together and we reached a decision and we resolved this. Mm -hmm. so there are situations, and, and this is extremely important, like the policy should not drive common sense and what's the best yeah. for the patients all mm -hmm. the time. There is this one point in time mm -hmm. where, where we don't want the policy to uh, blunt and numb our common mm -hmm. sense. We want mm -hmm. people to use their common sense yep. and do the best for the patients. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and I was looking for that, that I right. would want for there to be some clarity right. if it's, you know, dire, the situation is very uncomfortable right. for the patient. You know, all of the sequence of events, I, I appreciate that they're there, but it seems like you have to just be able to act quickly. Right. Um, and also that patients know that they have the ability to escalate things. So yes. I'll, I'll go back and look for the other one. I just confirmed we have a patient rights and responsibilities uh, policy um, that details an item number um, nine, patient complaints. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for indulging me in that no, conversation. No. I just want to be sure I wasn't Absolutely. misinterpreting Absolutely. how this worked. So uh, with that, any other further dialogue on items B1 through B3? All in favor of approving the consent agenda? Aye. Aye. Uh, opposed? Abstentions? Uh, uh, item B1 uh, moves forward as approval. With this, we'll move into item C, uh, the QPSC chair, uh, as uh, in following with our journal club. Um, uh, the article I selected for, for this month is called The Challenger Disaster Teaches Leaders to Face the Brutal Facts of Reality. Um, has everyone had an opportunity to read this? Chiefs of staff, have you had an opportunity to read this article? Do you have it in front of you? Um, if you haven't, let me, let, let me give you about 90 seconds. Be a quick reader and read through this, and, and I'll speak while you're, while you're uh, all trying to read over this. So, so why did I choose this article? So in no particular order, so here are some of the reasons. Number one, I'm, I'm a born and raised Texan. I was born in Houston, the home of NASA. I've always been uh, fascinated by NASA and I will continue to be fascinated by MASA. It is a treasure trove of leadership lessons, good and bad. Second, lessons in humility always strike a chord with me, and this is one of the ultimate lessons in humility uh, as you read this article. And third, just like NASA, all organizations suffer from launch fever or go fever. Uh, we are no exception. And uh, 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 where do you take the pause? Where do you slow things down? It's, it's a really, really important question. I wanted us to take a few moments to just dig into that just a little bit about where we need to take a pause and where, where we do need to move fast across a variety of strategic initiatives that we're doing in this organization. And last, uh, in four days, it's the 33rd anniversary of that Challenger disaster, and I, I still remember it. I was a young high schooler, and I remember us all sitting in front of the TV just being fascinated by it, so it's always kind of struck a chord with me. So with that, I'll open up our journal, journal club dis discussion. Trustees, any comments on the article? 
just goes back to that whole culture thing. You could, mm -hmm. of course, the checklists and right. things and the, you know, yeah. pre-flight um, things and all of the structures, but it's also that I, I thought of the kind of school shootings you see and other things where people say, oh, we saw these warning signs and we thought of this, but we just didn't speak up and people would say we had it. You know, there are just so many ways it places this could be extrapolated to, but yeah. not. Um, no, I did speaking up. Yeah, I did some work over here at the Shabona Space and Science Center. I don't know if anyone knows this, but they have a simulation lab. Yeah. Yeah. And I participated with them on a team building experience. And one of the changes that NASA made after this horrible accident um, was that they went to a new go-no-go no, go decision making yeah. for each of the teams involved. And we would rehearse that with our participants in the simulation. And it made for each person to be able at any one time in stop that go-no-go no, go sequence to stop it. So life support, engineering, and you know, all of those different players. And, and it is something that bears you know, uh, modeling in, in a situation where we're dealing with such complexity. My question would be, where are we rushing? Yeah. Are we rushing anywhere that makes us feel um, anxious at the speed of play. Yeah, and an, a, an ongoing dialogue we need to continue to have. Here, we, our focus is on quality, but uh, uh, in our other jobs mm -hmm. on the big board, we, have, we get to entertain those discussions. Um, I'm just going to read the last two paragraphs because I think they, re they resonate with, they should resonate with all of us, and, and I think they're very important. Leaders need to create an environment and institutional culture that welcomes and encourages individuals to share their opinions. A courageous, independent thinker should voice their opinion and try to convince everyone of the validity of the organization's reality. The views of the independent thinker may not be ultimately adopted, but at a minimum, those views provide a different path, a path against which the majority opinion can be tested and either confirmed or changed. Under this type of process, the best decisions will emerge. In the words, in the words of renowned Brazilian novelist Paulo Calo, if you want to be successful, you must respect one rule. Never lie to yourself. Leaders, remember this when one of the independent thinkers on your staff reminds you to face the brutal facts of your reality. So with that, uh, that was our pause and our, and, and our, and our thoughtful moment. We will uh, continue to move on through the agenda unless there are any other comments to entertain on this. All right, thank you. Thank you, Thank you. That's really good. Good it is a very good article. Um, let's go to item D, the med staff reports. So uh, first of all, I'd like to open item D, the med staff reports, by reminding uh, everyone on this committee that we have a new cadre of chief of staffs. Uh, and I'd like uh, for uh, just to, to remind the chief of staffs, staffs about, the, about this part. You've already submitted a written report. That report can become the, the lever around which you get to, to use the microphone at your, at, 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 which is at your disposal. Each of you gets roughly 10 to 15 minutes uh, to talk. And, and please talk around that report because that's the prep work that the, the QP, QPSC has done around that. Um, I encourage you at future drafts to maybe uh, consider more of a narrative function rather than bullet items. It helps maybe give, it makes, it makes the context a little bit richer. And, and just to let you know, uh, uh, by way of standard work, after each of your reports, I'll get to ask you the same questions. Uh, can you order your top current concerns? 
Are you satisfied that you have the resources and planning to negotiate these concerns? And then I'll ask you if you have any further comments. Is that fair? All right, uh, Chiefs, I, I always call dealer's choice. You guys get to go. Just introduce yourself. Tell us how long you've been at, uh, in, in, in the system, what your specialty is, and uh, that will help us with the, with the introduction. And then, and then, uh, and then, very, very good. And then, and then the board will go around and introduce themselves to you as well. Uh, I'm Joseph Marzuk. I'm an infectious disease specialist. I've been uh, in practice since uh, 1982. And uh, I'll be in a hospital probably since then. Uh, uh, and had uh, uh, the infection control as well. Uh, and in my role as the chief of staff, uh, just uh, I guess uh, 24 days. So, <laughs> welcome. Thank you. Uh, you, we'll, we'll go through all three of you and then you guys can do your first. Should he do his report or just, uh, just, we'll just We'll just stick with this family. Sure, I'm Dr. Dr. Mike Ingenio. I'm a vascular surgeon um, practicing uh, mainly at um, San Leandro Hospital, but we do practice at Alameda as well. Um, I have been in practice since 95 and in the Bay Area, um, in the East Bay, since 2001. Excellent. Welcome. Mm -hmm. <coughs> And I'm Kelly Bullard. I'm one of the trauma critical care docs at Highland. And I've been here for 14, going on 15 years. Mm -hmm. I came here straight out of fellowship at San Francisco General, back when it was still San Francisco General. <laughs> and uh, UCSF fellowship, but trained my undergraduate and residency at UNC Chapel Hill. So I'm East Coast, West Coast. And we'll just do a, a quick one-liner, Gary, if you don't mind. Oh, uh, Gary Sharland. I'm the uh, Chief Executive Officer of Masonic Homes of California. Before that, I spent 14 years at Washington Hospital. I'm Maria Hernandez. I have a company called Impact for Health. I'm Taft Bouquet. I'm a gastroenterologist here in the system. I'm Kenny Banerjee. I'm a Coalition Relations Director in the United States Breastfeeding Committee. And in my day job, I work on the uh, federal women's health policy, especially maternity care practices. Well, thank you, and welcome to the Chiefs. All right, with that, let's jump into reports. Dr. Marzouk, would you mind leading us in? Uh, uh, the Alameda Hospital Chief of Staff report is on page 57 of your packet. Yes, as, uh, as included, uh, just to highlight a few uh, points uh, uh, first uh, because uh, of our joint commi commission survey there was a plan of correction that was submitted for uh, focused uh, professional practice evaluation which was uh, uh, approved and uh, by the MEC and uh, uh, obviously with the advent of, uh, of uh, uh, EPIC uh, or Sapphire here uh, then, uh, then uh, there will be a total revamp of, uh, of uh, uh, the focused uh, PPE. Uh, so we have uh, submitted that uh, plan for corrections. Uh, uh, moving on, our, our dashboard included the targets uh, 
and our patient experience uh, we the call button help uh, was above girl uh, and uh, and uh, above baseline for courtesy and respect uh, for the patient experience and uh, a large portion of and the new communication tool that instituted all portions due to due to the institution of uh, of all this system uh, uh, or our processing at Alameda Hospital due to uh, Veronica Shelton and uh, the team. Uh, uh, some issues that I should uh, uh, make note uh, for now are our coverage of uh, various uh, specialties uh, at, uh, at Alameda Hospital. Uh, number one are the hospitals. Uh, because of uh, the increased number of uh, transfers uh, that have uh, come from Ireland to, to Alameda Hospital, uh, it has impacted particularly the evening uh, shift uh, and the night shift when transfers come in as new admissions to our hospitals. Uh, and that has impacted the workload of the hospitals. Our census has, uh, has essentially increased uh, due to both our admissions as well as the, the influx of the transfer admissions from Ireland due to obviously overload. And, uh, and with the Dutch Maldine and our hospice, uh, that uh, this is being addressed in terms of what can be done to increase the resources to affect uh, better uh, or more complete, complete uh, and uh, uh, coverage for the shifts that are evening to tonight in particular, and if it involves uh, actual increase uh, uh, in personnel or uh, because uh, the workload is getting uh, a lot, I would say it's probably 50% greater uh, than, the, than the, uh, it has been uh, in terms of the census. Uh, but but uh, with the uh, 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 support uh, that's being addressed. Uh, second is uh, specialty coverage for for uh, gastroenterology. We only have one gastroenterologist, uh, and uh, that individual obviously can't work 24 hours. Uh, a day, uh, uh, 365 days a year, and that is uh, 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 currently the, the provider is currently out, uh, and uh, again we're working with the uh, FDA and uh, and uh, uh, administration to provide the coverage. Uh, whether it's contractual or non-contractual uh, during his absence 
because of the critical need for gastroenterology, especially especially in an acute uh, setting. Uh, uh, otherwise, they may have to be transferred to uh, a facility uh, where acute processes. And uh, finally, our cardiology uh, coverage uh, as a, being a, a community hospital. Uh, we have uh, been uh, uh, having coverage with an on-site cardiologist uh, seven days a week, uh, ability to make uh, rounds, and obviously we're not an interventional facility uh, where Anything that's acute that requires intervention is automatically transferred to to Highland, and uh, and uh, we're working uh, with uh, uh, the cardiologists that currently are at Health Meta to ex to expand that coverage and have that coverage available to uh, on weekends. Uh, and we're talking about physical coverage, not just a phone call uh, when necessary. And, uh, and we're having a, a subsequent meeting with the involved uh, cardiologist uh, and, and, uh, and uh, the impacting departments uh, chair. Uh, finally, uh, just the uh, medicine uh, care. Uh, there were some issues as to the, the utilization of the nuclear medicine facility and and how how do the personnel and the better we get the isotope, how to to uh, to best utilize our existing resources if certain tests uh, uh, may need to be transferred to a different institution because of, of low utilization. Uh, uh, and primarily, uh, we're talking about 75% of uh, our nuclear med scans are higher scans. Uh, the, of our non-cardiac, we have a, a facility, and we, we have, we're fine with the cardiac procedures, but the non-cardiac procedures, 75%, uh, are, uh, uh, are higher scans which which can be uh, transferred. So that's being looked at as uh, as uh, a utilization type of issue. And to, and uh, finally, we've been able to lift uh, something called 5150s uh, at uh, at uh, uh, Alameda Hospital, uh, which makes our EV work very uh, more fluid. Uh, I'll leave some questions. Any questions? Trustees, questions for Dr. Marzouk. Uh, thank you for your report, Dr. Marzouk. As always, I'm going to ask you the same questions. Can you, uh, thank you for your report. Can you rank order your concerns? That you, There's a lot of stuff in this report. Oh, I think the, the main concerns are, are uh, number one is probably uh, the workload. Uh, of, uh, of our current uh, hospitals due to increasing census and transfer, particularly, again, in the evening and uh, night shifts. 
and then our specialty coverages. That would be your number two? Uh, yeah, both. I mean, we're, we're gastroenterology and cardiology. Part of it is, is uh, specialty coverages on weekends for cardiology and and also for for the non uh, the gastroenterological coverage when the individual is either out of town or whatever. Are you satisfied that you have resources and planning to to negotiate these concerns? Yes, we're working uh, with that thoroughly. Uh, okay, wonderful. Trustees, thank you for your report. Uh, Dr. Ingenu, the San Leandro Hospital report, please. For the summaries there in front of you, um, the credentials and privileges we discussed, there are no particular issues um, that were reported uh, for professional services contracting. That was an issue that was discussed at our last uh, MEC um, with Dr. Jamaluddin. The current anesthesia group, which is providing those services, has had difficulty with binding staff um, and they are losing an anesthesiologist and therefore will not be able to provide that coverage sending into a hospital. Dr. Jamaluddino uh, has assured us that um, the anesthesia group here has the bandwidth to cover that. Um, and I've had some discussion with Dr. Newmark as well about that and he feels confident and they're planning a, um, a, a relatively slow transition to uh, allow those physicians to be oriented to the facility, the equipment, um, the anesthesiologist. So that sounds like um, that will work. I think they're losing their physician in July, June or July, and I think there are a couple FDEs coming on the anesthesia department here soon after that point. So he, he wants to have a blend of both um, potentially experienced anesthesiologists, and, and it's going to be, a, and newer ones, but there, there will be a number that have to be assigned there because we run generally two hours every day and it's run 24 hours a day um, uh, as needed uh, with call for the ED. So uh, he seems comfortable that there will be enough coverage for that, so I'm glad to that. I was concerned initially um, just because the other group has had a very difficult time recruiting physicians like in any specialty to this area. Mm. It can be very difficult. Anyway, that, that uh, will be ongoing. Um, and uh, the credentials are being worked on by Lily Wong and the medical staff office there. Um, the uh, quality and outcomes, the uh, True North met metrics were reviewed. The quality pillars uh, are good. We need to do some improvement on the patient experience pillar, and that's ongoing. Um, as far as other issues, um, the three other main issues, medical staff uh, leadership, uh, merger of the medical staff at San Leandro with the Highland medical staff. And we've had some discussions with an attorney that was um, recommended by Lynn Kaufman, um, who's had a, a lot of experience doing this in the Bay Area, joining medical staffs, uh, Steve Schneer, who Mike Moore is actually familiar with and, and feels comfortable with as well. And, and giving him the charge to really make this a smooth process, not an adversarial one. Um, he is currently reviewing the bylaws of both and see where there are differences um, to make sure that we can continue um, the services that we have there within the bylaws of uh, Highland Hospital. Um, there are a few minor things. I don't think there's going to be big issues there. I mean, for example, there's a whole category of physicians called office-based physicians 
at, at San Leandro, which is, is a strange category. There aren't many there. And I, and I won't belabor this, but it essentially allows physicians who do not really practice much of the hospital to come to the hospital, be involved, and it's generally primary care physicians in their patients' care. And, and I think it's, it, it should be welcomed, at least in our facility, because it, it keeps the primary doc who um, is in the community maybe not directly taking care of the patient in the hospital involved so that when the patient comes back to them, they really know what went on. If, if they have enough interest to come see their patients in the hospital, we should encourage it, I think. So, um, and it's, it's done on a long time, and, and so I think that that's a, a category we should keep. And I, I don't think there's any contention on that. Um, also trying to uh, move the physicians from the San Leandro uh, medical staff seamlessly to the Highland medical staff in one fell swoop rather than recredentialing everybody, which I think would be a nightmare for both the medical staff office and the physicians, and I think that's very doable. Um, and that's something that I think uh, Mr. Schneer has helped work on, so that hopefully can be done expeditiously. And then governance, we've talked about this, and we've had some discussions uh, Kelly and Gene and, and I um, had a discussion recently about working through that, and that's that's ongoing. So, uh, you know, I, I, we've sort of divided the, um, uh, there are a few issues, the, the governance and the credentialing and those things, and try to, rather than have meetings with all of us and discussions, to, to, to parse this out so that a couple people be involved and just how do you facilitate getting that done, and then we can then I can come to them and discuss what, what our feelings are. So I, I think that that's ongoing, and our plan is to just make this happen uh, as expeditiously as we can. Um, the next item was the 5150. I think that's you know, similar to what Dr. Marzouk spoke about, um, and that's awaiting board supervisor approval from what I understand. Um, and the, the chief of the emergency department at RNEC absolutely welcomes that because it would help them with their throughput in the ED and not having people held there for prolonged periods of time. Finally, um, Dr. Vitorino has a proposal which was approved by the NEC to have the surgery uh, mid-level, mid upper-level residents uh, available for the um, Highland surgeons, the ECSF surgeons, to work with as their assistants, but also to give them some exposure to a different practice model um, in a different type of facility because I, I guess they're not uh, exposed to that particularly if only working here and that was welcomed by all. I mean, it doesn't really affect specifically the, the physicians that are working there but no one seemed to have any issues with it especially the model that he's presenting which is really them just assisting them they're not primary on this with appropriate um, disclosure to the patients of course of uh, what their role is. Um, I think that would conclude my report. Are there any questions? Thank you, Dr. Ingenio. Trustees, any questions for Dr. Ingenio? Just a question about, um, could you give an example of where a physician who's accredited at San Leandro would not be uh, ready to work at uh, the other system? No. Uh, well, there are about four. It could be related to uh, board certification because okay. there are about four or five physicians that aren't board certified. Okay. Now, a couple of those, and I drilled down on those a little bit, a couple of those are ED physicians that were functioning before there existed a board of 
right. emergency right. department. Okay. A couple of those uh, others have uh, either never specifically had privileges in that subspecialty or let them lapse. Um, and you know, quite frankly, when um, San Leandro joined AHS, there was a date which everybody was recredentialed. I think it was 2012. Any of these physicians, however, were on staff long-standing at San Leandro way before that. So if you go by the criteria, the, the, the bylaws at Highland, which I think that the date was 2008, anybody who was on staff before that date, all those people would meet that criteria. It's, it's not someone new. And our current bylaws actually um, have uh, particular provisions that you cannot have privileges at this stage unless you're board certified or board eligible. So. I don't think that that's really going to be a big problem. I, I don't anticipate discussing it with Kelly and Jean. That's going to be a problem either. Um, you know, the, is that yes. an adequate thank answer? You. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, were there any pending plans of correction from the Joint Commission visit, uh, or is everything okay with that? There, there were two related to bylaws, which are actually on here. Oh, yeah, the bylaws. Yeah, yes, yes. And, and they were related to histories and physicals related to the bylaws, and it really wasn't so much there were problems, uh, problems that were uh, that the Joint Commission was worried about. It was more that the way we were doing it wasn't directly reflected in the bylaws. So what we did was. Rather than change our processes, we changed the bylaws to match with what we were doing. Because uh, it was appropriate what we were doing, it just didn't jive with, with what was documented there. So that's what those two changes are. Um, Thank you. But everything else has been addressed. So. Thank you for your report, Dr. G. New questions. Can you rank order your top concerns uh, that are currently in your brain? Yeah, I think my, my two concerns are the timeliness, trying to get the, the medical staff merger done efficiently and quickly, that's a certainly a concern because it involves hurting a lot of people. Um, uh, you know, my goal here, and I specifically told this to RMEC, is not to have attorneys, no offense, Mr. Morley, discussing this directly. But, used to it. but basically, um, to really get the opinions, this, this gentleman, uh, Mr. Schneer, is very experienced with this. To, I think our main reason for discussing things with him was because he knows what we don't know, yeah. what the pitfalls potentially are. Um, there's obvious things to us, but I think he can uh, provide that extra insight. And I specifically told him that what we need to do is discuss amongst ourselves what, what the issues are, and then you know Kelly and I or NECs can meet together and discuss how that is. And once we've come to our agreement, then we just have them articulated in a document, whether it's Lynn Kaufman and him or both of them together. Uh, uh, our general counsel will be giving a presentation in the in the larger board meeting on on the merger, and contained within that packet is a date one August 2019 as a projected date where it's sort of done. Do you think that's a realistic date from your perspective? Uh, I, I do. Uh, I'm not sure the attorneys do, but but I do. Um, just well, because sure. draft, our general counsel drafted that. <laughs> yeah, so, so. Yeah, well, I just I, I guess from their prior experience, it's taken longer. But I, I don't think that that's going to be a big issue. I don't think the a lot of things, there's big issues of disagreement that, that, that can't be worked out. I mean, I think one of the, the issues that that I can tell you from RMEC, they want buy-in from the whole medical staff. Whatever is agreed upon, um, they want to put that to a vote, um, not just they. We all feel that we're representing our medical staff. We should put it to a vote. These are what we've um, come up with. And part of it's the way you catch it to the medical staff, and these are reasonable things. 
and I don't anticipate a lot of issues with that, but we want to do, we definitely want to put it to a vote of our medical staff that this is what we've come up with, and this is the resolution to this. Um, and that has to be voted on by the Highland medical staff, too, because any changes of the bylaws of Highland have to be voted. I don't know what the bylaws are in terms of whether it's a simple majority or super majority to change the bylaws. Mm. But, the, but the, you know, typically the problem is getting enough of a quorum to vote on a bylaws change. Um, so well, we look forward to hearing more on this. Um, the, you know, the anesthesia thing, quite frankly, has has been very concerning to me. Number two, um, yeah, that would be definitely a big number two, um, because uh, you know our group does a, a large volume of the the procedures at the hospital. In the acuity level, of the patients that we deal with is super high, um, even on minor procedures. I mean, they're vascular paths with pulmonary disease, cardiac disease, renal disease, and so we have very big concerns always, I mean, and, I, and I don't doubt the, the abilities, but it's something that we're always nervous about because people can expire from a vas and vascular procedure no matter what happens um, because they're so ill. And so, you know, anesthesia is crucial for what we do. This is July, you said. Is uh, there's going to be a sort of a slow transition. You know, I think what they're going to have one anesthesiologist. Right now, they assign two or three there. There'll be short one, and then one of the Highland anesthesiologists will come. So there'll be an overlap where they're both working together for a while on various ones. And then I think the ultimate transition, Dr. Gennardi, maybe can comment on that date. I think it's July-ish. Do you know? Because uh, on the dates that the anesthesia group from... Uh, the anesthesia group will be stopping. So we are working with Dr. David Black, who is the chief of the anesthesia group. We're going to start uh, with one attending going until June, July, and then we work together in sharing calls. Uh, we don't have a specific date, uh, but it's sometime in July. But it is, uh, it is also fluid, like we will work together towards that date. We're going to work, uh, I mean, the Armida Health Partners physicians are going to start going there in uh, March and then uh, scale up as, as we move. And uh, we have the, uh, the staffing work plan. We are going to send senior physicians initially just to learn and communicate with the surgeons. Uh, they are familiar with Lori Fordell, which uh, VP there and uh, they work there. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Nijenio, any other? Thank nope. you very much. Thank, Thank you for your report. Thank you for your report. Uh, Dr. Ballard. Thank you. Um, there are no issues with the credentials and privileges we presented previously. The um, professional services and contacts were presented in our open MEC and there were no concerns from uh, anyone's standpoint on those. They were approved on that level. In terms of the specific topics under our quality and outcomes measures, I think um, January particularly was a landmark month in terms of the amount of time we were in NEDOC search red. And that image, that cartoon image of the house or the box bursting at the seams was sort of what we were living under for, I'd say, 24 hours a day, at least six days a week, it felt like during the middle, month, the middle weeks of the month. And there were a, a great many discussions starting to look at not only 
the experience within the emergency department, but starting to look at the institution as an entire organism. And I think that we've just begun to look at the tip of the iceberg with that problem. I will say that I was very encouraged that some of the conversations that I heard, particularly mid and later month when we were dealing with surge red number 457, it seemed like, there were really intelligent and thoughtful questions being posed about not only inflow of patients, but outflow of patients. And I mean, I'm a general surgeon at heart, so inflow and outflow makes total sense to me. And I was happy to hear conversations starting to really analyze what the root cause of the problem was and not just the symptoms. So um, we started to take apart, I think, the disposition process. And there's many, many layers to what affects that, but the conversations are starting to happen. And I think that that approach of looking at the hospital as an entire entity and not just what's making the doors be more and more full on one end is um, going to help us in the long run. And I agree with what Dr. Bouquet said earlier. When we're in surge red, the level of, of anxiety and tension it creates in every single department at every single level is palpable. So I, I just, I'm so grateful that the people that are working on this as hard as they are working on it and that some of the people who I admire the most in this room haven't just thrown up their hands and walked out. But um, it, it's just a testament to the kind of people we have working at Highland in the first place, the fact that we're still willing to wrestle with this. And there's a lot of work yet to be done. A lot of work. So that's, and, and I know the question's coming, that's my number one. <laughs> just <so laughs> uh, We also, had a, a significant amount of discussion around SAPFIRE implementation. We're all super excited. We're gearing up to start training. It sounds like we're on target, which is, I think, is the first time ever in my experience at this institution we've been on target for something in terms of calendar. So, go team. Uh, and, and, you know, once again, hats off to Dr. English and his, his part of the response to the EPIC uh, support surfaces and and I just I'm I think that this is going to be a landmark. I, I, I said it myself in in my exec. There's going to be when we look back at the history of Highland a before epic time and an after epic time. So um, this is this is a big year for us. Uh, in terms of other issues, uh, as Dr. Engineer mentioned, I'm tremendously encouraged. We spent what felt like a long time in, on the phone the other day. And I think we, I think we basically, the intention is that we can transition the med staffs into a, a collegial and collaborative entity. And I think we're well on our way to doing that. Um, I'm a trauma surgeon, so I want things to happen super fast. <laughs> and um, I think that we can, I'm sure with Dr. Ingenuous leadership at San Leandro, we'll be able to nudge this forward well before the August deadline. Um, in terms of the, the clinical perspectives and budgets, I think what we as a, as a med staff really hope to see in the future as we grow both with our electronic medical record and as an institution that favors quality and, and 
services to our patient populations. We really want to have a much more transparent process around the budget formation of the budgets this year. And um, we don't have a lot of firm plans in terms of what that will look like, but we know that we want to have a more transparent process as we go forward so that the people who are on the front lines, the people who are doing the day-to-day -day patient care can reflect back to those in rooms making financial decisions where, where some of this money really does need to be spent so that we can build infrastructure, we can build safety mechanisms, we can make sure that that we're not being penny-wise and pound-foolish, which has been my observation here for a decade and a half. And um, I'd like to be pound-wise and penny-foolish in the future. Uh, last but not least, the provider wellness, once again, has proven itself very valuable in that in the last week alone, we've had two pretty tragic um, patient uh, scenarios that staff was profoundly affected by and at least our fledgling wellness program coordinated coordinator Dr. Welk, Dr. Um, Rosequist was contacted you know, there were discussions on how we could use wellness as a way to spring forward from some of these really difficult clinical situations that affect the people who care profoundly and, you know, in my perspective, having done trauma and critical care for most of my career, that you can't make up the stories that we see. I mean, it's incredible the kind of tragedy and, and psychosocial dysfunction that we deal with in terms of caregivers. So, in my mind, wellness is second on our list in terms of importance. What's not on the... the list is also, and, and I think dovetails with this, is our two of our major medical groups are still having discussions about what's going to be their future. And, you know, my observation, having no skin in this game really, because I'm university-based, is that for them to feel complete and productive, to have that part ironed out and sort of much more um, organized in a way that they feel supported is going to help contribute to wellness across the board. So I know that those discussions are ongoing, you know, and, and I hope that they come to some conclusion in the near future in terms of how they're going to handle their contracts Thomas as we move forward. Yeah, level two, ETA, and that concludes my report. Any questions for Dr. Ballard? Thank so. you for your frankness. Yeah, Please keep that coming. Keep it coming. And uh, so, already thank you for ranking us. What I took from my notes was number one was surge, number two is wellness, number three is epic. Is that right? Number three is epic. Uh, so, are you satisfied that you have the resources and planning to negotiate these concerns? I am. I am satisfied that we have the intestinal fortitude to move forward with what structure we have now. We could always use more support. This is this this institution will never have enough support for the work we do. But I'm encouraged by watching people in this room, the co-leaders, chairs. I, I think we're going to make it through without too much, too many skate knees. So. Excellent. Thank you for your report. And to the three chiefs of staff, your inaugural report, thank you. 
we don't bite, so thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, well done. With that, we'll close item D and we'll move into item E, the ambulatory uh, SBU quality metric report read, led by uh, Dr. Barbara Ria. Is, is that right, Paul, you're leading it? Yeah. yeah excellent. Um, so, um, trustees, her report begins on page 59 of your, of your, of your document and she'll have some uh, accompanying slides as well. She wrote a very nice narrative for those of us who did our homework. Mm -hmm. It is short, so you can probably still skim it right now. Oh, yes. Oh, that's good. That's good. Great. Are the slides? There we go. Um, hi, everyone. It's good to be back from leave. Uh, the rest of the ambulatory team, thank you, apologizes. We actually have an ambulatory standing epic call right now, so that is where everyone is planning their fortitude for our rollout. Um, so I want to just go through a few slides and hopefully really leave this open for discussion if folks have questions or comments from the report. Uh, this slide is a little bit challenging to see, but is our SBU-specific dashboard, so most of the metrics are covered in the written report. Um, a few just highlights to walk through. In terms of access, I think everyone knows we're really working on cycle time, and that is from when a patient arrives to our clinic and is checked in to when they exit the building. Can we get that down to a reasonable amount of time so that people do not have to be unemployed to be seen in our clinics? Um, I'm proud to say that we are making a lot of progress on this metric. As you will see, our specialty care times have come down significantly. Primary care, we've seen some modest improvement, but are still off target. Our primary care cycle time was already better at baseline than our specialty care, so moving the needle you know, in specialty was a little bit easier because we found a lot of low-hanging fruit. But I think this has been a great exercise for our managers especially who are using the Plan, Do, Study, Act, uh, PDSA cycle of change. Our institution also has an Institute for Healthcare Improvement subscription, so many of them are working on honing their skills in this arena um, through this effort and really working with multidisciplinary stakeholder groups, providers, front office staff, back office staff. Um, you know, the, the problems in this waiting time span the entire chain. And so I'm hoping by next month, at least a few of our clinical sites will have completed their PDSAs. So we'll include some of those outcomes in our next report so you guys can get an actual feel for the granular work that's happening in all of our clinics. Um, in terms of the actual quality metrics that we're tracking, there are a whole host of them. Um, blood pressure and uh, diabetes, you've heard me talk about before. We have chronic care teams, and those are in doing well in the green at Target and really reflect the multidisciplinary approach we've taken. So in all four of our wellness centers now, it's really nurses and pharmacists that are leading the way in terms of controlling chronic disease for our patients using standing protocols um, and policies that we've passed through our various committees. I think the area where we still have a fair amount of improvement to do is colon cancer screening. I'm sure Taft can tell you it's just not a popular screening test with our patients um, and even though our order rates have improved a lot really getting patients to complete the test in a timely fashion and get it back to us is an area where we still have a lot of work to do and then the other ones that you see in red are upcoming QIP metrics that we're not selecting um, childhood access for pay for performance for this year but it's something that likely we're going to be trying 
trying to achieve targets on next year, but this is such a critical access metric that for the children who are assigned to our system, are we getting them in? Are we doing their annual exams and making sure that you know they are well and supporting the families and caring for their children? So this is something we really are watching and figuring out a multi-pronged strategy. Um, these patients are patients assigned to us, not necessarily seen. So when you look at the metrics for patients already coming to our clinics, we do reasonably well. And the challenge here is if someone is assigned to us and they've never come to us, how do we engage them? How do we convince them to come in? How do we do that when sometimes their phone numbers and their addresses are wrong? We send them letters. There's no responses. So um, this is essential. And I think the lessons learned here will then be extrapolated to our adult population and other vulnerable populations as well that we know don't always engage in care. Um, the seven-day hospital discharge follow-up is really a collaborative with our inpatient side. There's a lot of work happening around readmissions, transitions, and care. Um, so this is another huge lift for us and something that we haven't done as well at um, in the past, really looking at care coordination and making sure that we have safe, effective follow-up plans for our patients when they're discharged from the hospital. Um, CG caps, I'll let Tanvir address when he goes over the TNM dashboard. There's a lot of work being done in this area too. And you know, we knew this was going to be a hard lift. For the last three years of Prime, we have hit our CG caps targets every year. And of course, the second you hit your target, they give you a new one that is higher. And I think you know we're seeing some of that plateau where the low-hanging fruit is gone. We've solved the easy problems, and now it's really changing some of the culture, having really reliable processes that are working not just 80% of the time, but 100% the time um, so that lift is definitely harder any questions about the slide yeah I do have a question um, I've probably asked this before and it might be because sapphire is not yet um, in place but at some point I believe we have a responsibility to look at the disparities among Latino African-American white and Asian populations that we serve. And I wonder if there is already, on your end, an ability to look at that. Um, and, and maybe you're monitoring that, that's fine. But I wonder if in the future we'll have some conversations about that so that um, we're really living up to, I think, what the equity pledge is about, right? So we know that health inequities exist everywhere. Are we pinpointing those enough to actually say, wow, we, we need to do more to get African Americans in the door uh, to do colorectal cancer screening, which is really tough and really hard, but if there's a huge gap, I think the board needs to know that that's being done. Absolutely, and thank you for highlighting that. And I'll make a note to have uh, Dr. Gupta definitely come with me to our next SPU update. We do actually, in current state, have the ability to stratify every single one of our quality metrics that we're tracking for Prime and QIP by race, ethnicity, sex, and language, actually. And so as part of Prime, we did have to pick a disparity reduction project. Okay. Um, ironically, as we looked at all the metrics, pretty much every single metric, we were unable to identify any disparities other than diabetes control. So the target intervention we did choose, African Americans in our system have a worse rate of diabetes control than non-African Americans. So there is work being done around targeting that population and really improving the care. It's still ongoing, but I think we'll have enough to sort of show um, some of the lessons learned because we're doing stakeholder interviews with our patients, with community members to understand, you know, what is the why behind that? So we can design an intervention. Um, I think what Epic and, or Sapphire rather.
it will allow us to do is, again, once patients hit our system, we're not seeing as many disparities, but the literature suggests that, you know, there's probably a lot of disparities of who even can get to us, navigate the system, show up, and be seen, and we don't have a lot of great information on the quality front of our assigned but not seen population that hopefully as we get better data from our payers um, and are capitated and tracking more of those metrics regularly, we'll have a much better sense of where that is. That's terrific. Thank you. Thank you for the great question. Are there questions here? Um, we just spoke about this at Finance, about how Alliance is working to get that group that's assigned but, you know, they don't, they haven't come to us yet, so. And I think that's where there's a lot of opportunity for collaboration because even, you know, we've been trying to work more closely with our payers, especially Alameda Alliance for the Capitated Lives. And, you know, there's data integrities there too. They get data from the state of, oh, here's the patient's phone number address. By the time, you know, that information gets passed down, it's not always accurate. So, um, and then just wanted to highlight, Alameda Alliance has been really doing a lot of great work, especially over the last year, around spotlighting patient access and trying to meet the state standards that DHCS puts forward. So they do a patient survey every single month, not just for us, but all of their contracted entities. And one of the questions is actually around wait times. And their metric is, you know, if you have an appointment in primary or specialty care, did your appointment start with the provider within 30 minutes of your appointment time? And so we actually got issued a corrective action plan from the Alliance um, while I was out on leave, but just thought you guys would find this data interesting. So this is patient self-report. So obviously, you know, maybe a patient doesn't remember 100% accurately, but it's still pretty, you know, relative data with that caveat. And so you'll see across our sites, their target is that they have a response rate of 80% of the time or more patients are being seen within 30 minutes. Um, and none of our sites are really hitting that metric right now, although we have been, you know, at some of our sites improving over time, especially at Newark and at Hayward. And so I think this dovetails really well with the cycle time work we're doing for the True North metric this year. It's clearly something that our payer partners care about, patients really care about this. Um, and a lot of our providers and staff are also really engaged. Within 30 minutes. So you want you want a better number. Yeah. Oh, so it's like if your appointment. of people had appointment, uh, got to see the doc within 30 minutes. Exactly. Okay, good. Thanks. Um, just in terms of clinical results, you know, I did point out earlier that our colorectal cancer screening rates, we have room for improvement, but we have made some progress. So some of you may remember when we presented last year, when we started, 0% of our colorectal cancer screening was being ordered by staff. It was up to the provider, whether it's a physician or APP, to remember what we do for screening, put in the test, remind the patient, counsel them, talk to them about it. Um, and now, you know, over the last year in our clinics, more than 80% of the time, the staff are doing this. So it's one thing taken off the provider's plate, march towards team-based care where the medical assistant assesses whether the patient is due based off of our standard flags that we have um, through our data reporting systems. We'll order the test, print out the label, set up the test, do the patient counseling, um, and keep track of whether or not that patient has returned that test. Um, and then the completion rates with that push have definitely gotten better. So again, we're still not at target because our target keeps getting more aggressive with Prime. Um, but colorectal cancer screening, I think, is probably the best that it's been in our system in the last few years, Taft. I don't know if you have. Yeah. So, you know, when we started this journey back in 2011, 
uh, our, our colorectal cancer screening rate was around 18%, which, which uh, for those of you who are interested in the literature, is roughly where most safety net systems exist. The, the, the national colorectal cancer screening rate is right around 63 to 64%. So the, this actually, uh, I like the aspirational goal, and I'm sad that it's red, but the big picture here is that we are a unique safety net system in that we are hitting a, a national average. This actually is remarkable. We get a lot of we get a lot of uh, kudos from this. I sit on the California Colorectal Cancer Coalition, and we're always talking about how how safety nets are actually starting to show other systems how we do it. Now, the best rate was, was Kaiser uh, South San Francisco a few years at 83 percent, and I think we could, this is something that we could. Uh, we could, we could achieve, uh, moving from sporadic to a systematic colorectal cancer screening, which is happening under the ambulatory division. So really, it, this is kind of a boring chart for those of you who don't look at this stuff, but it's pretty exciting stuff. Can you see what Hayward Wellness is doing that they've been like the lowest performing in the um, So basically, we had a, uh, what I like to call, come to Jesus moment right around here with Hayward Wellness around their colorectal cancer screening. Um, they put in a lot of effort to hit the target, in large part because colorectal cancer screening, in addition to being in prime, was also in our HPAC contract. It's also paid for performance metric with both of our payers. Um, so they did a huge just local push around this. I think one of the challenges of those types of pushes is you put in a lot of effort and energy that isn't sustainable. So they had people calling you know, multiple times, at the expense, obviously, of other activities. And so even though it looks really exciting to see that trend, I think the more interesting question to me um, as the operational leader is, you know, if you look at a site like Highland that's been performing, you know, relatively well over the course of a year, what do they do that allows them to keep that sustained improvement as opposed to, hey, we did a great job, we improved, and then we're going to backslide the second we stop thinking about this metric. Um, the other just few spotlight activities that I want to call your attention to, uh, we had a huge initiative over the last, since last March, um, where we were really trying to prepare ambulatory on the staff side for our transition to both Sapphire um, and population health. So we, we've known this is a problem for a while, but really we're only ready to engage with it starting last March, where if you look at our job descriptions across the system, we're mostly built around the acute care facilities. So our nursing job descriptions for ambulatory read the same as a unit nurse on med surge. So they say things like monitor telemetry, you know, do bedside vitals, which obviously, if you're in a clinic, those terms and that job description has no relevance to your day-to-day -day practice. Um, and what we discovered was both for our existing staff, it didn't provide a lot of clarity of what is my job, what do I need to do to succeed in my job, and then more importantly, when we were recruiting for ambulatory positions, most of the time, the vast majority of applicants we would get were inpatient trained folks, you know, because that's what the job description looks like. So it was a huge impediment to getting the right type of staff to fill our various positions. So we engaged in a meet and confer with SEIU, and for all of our staff positions, nurses, LVNs, front office registration staff, and medical assistants, we redid all the job descriptions. So this was a long, involved meet and confer process, uh, but it was really exciting two days before 
before I went into labor, we signed the tentative agreements with SEIU, and now all these job descriptions are live and effective, and already we're seeing a change in terms of candidate pool. We can now train to these job descriptions as we're looking at rolling out Sapphire. The descriptions are very clear for the type of team-based, population health-centered workforce that we need to be successful in our future state. And then the other big thing as we went through this process, um, and we're really able to partner with SEIU and the Ed Fund Flow, is we discovered most part, you know, institutions in the area require medical systems to be certified. So there are state certifying bodies and national certifying bodies, um, similar to you know nurses having a license that they have to keep and maintain. Um, and so we actually have introduced a new requirement for all of our medical systems to be certified. So we have 148 of them in ambulatory right now. They have until October of 2019 to complete the certification process. Um, the Ed Fund has been really great as is the union. So we there's provisions to allow MAs to study. We're setting up trainings during lunch times and other hours for medical assistants to really work on their test-taking skills and develop some of the content expertise that they'll need to pass this test. Um, but I think it's really going to help elevate the practice of our medical assistants throughout ambulatory, meet a community standard, and also be great for our workforce. Because the reality is, this is where everyone is or is headed. And so if you're a medical assistant who's not certified and you move somewhere or want to leave the organization, it really is an impediment to sort of what options you have outside of AHS. Questions about any of that? That was the last official slide I had, so I'd love to just, you know, I don't want to talk too much, but open it up to any no, other nice questions, thoughts. Nice presentation. The narrative very very much helps, uh, and, and as we talk with all our CAOs, we'll be giving standing reports. Trustees, open it up to any questions. Um, with regard to the last slide, what is, what is the requirement? Is there a classroom requirement for certification for MA? as well as a test? It's, it's just the test. And so there are courses and classes that people can do to prepare for the test, but they can also do home study, and there's plenty of home study materials as well. So they take the certification test, and then they have to recertify. It depends. There's four options for them to take the test through four different certifying bodies. And then depending on which certifying body it is, there's sort of the equivalent of CME. So every, you know, it varies from every one to five years. You have to do a certain amount of either in-person time or virtual educational credits to maintain your certification once you're certified. Mm -hmm. Dr. Marie, can you rank order, the, the same question I asked them, can you rank order your top current concerns um, with regard to ambulatory for yourself? I think the top three would all be Sapphire for okay. me, to be honest. One, two, three. three. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, the team did an amazing job with the support of a lot of the leaders in this room when I was out on maternity leave, just you know, making progress and moving things forward. I think what's clear is that planning for an EHR rollout lays bare all of our broken processes. And so for things that are otherwise simple decisions, you know, in your organization, does the medical assistant do the checkout or does registration staff do the checkout? We have 20 different clinics doing it 20 different ways. And so, you know, the work of moving towards the EHR is not just, oh, yeah, pick option A, but it's how do we get all of those different processes, all the different stakeholders to come to one consensus. And I know everyone in the room is feeling that same challenge. It's just um, a, a huge lift to get us prepared in the amount of time that we have. Um, certainly, I think the teams are coming together. Everyone is, you know, trying to have fortitude to make progress. It just it's a tall order for a short amount of time. Do you feel resourced to negotiate this concern? 
I think it's one of those concerns that cannot necessarily be addressed by material resources. You know, a lot of it is bandwidth and yeah. human capital. There's only so many places people yeah. can be. Yeah. Uh, you know, as a division chief, I've been asked to, to make some projections with regard to manpower and the, and, the, and the like, or person power. And, you know, doing the math of the EPIC training, two hours of a, of a pre-e-clinical uh, testing, if you will, four hours of of uh, a group setting where you learn it, and then two hours of personalization. So you do the, the math on that, that's eight hours. You, you, you scope that over 500 people or so, you know, we're, we're talking you know, 4,000 hours there. And then the, then there's the super users, which uh, which the estimates vary. What I last heard when I, in my session was the system is looking to have about 48 um, uh, super users, physician super users to train others. And each training uh, of those 48 super users is around 44 hours is what they note. So so when you do the math of that, uh, you know, that's, you know, 20, 20 something hundred hours. How do we address this manpower issue vis-a-vis the training necessary to launch Epic in the ambulatory space? Yeah, and as you very well know, you know, even if the funding is there, which funding is there, like finding backfill for all of these positions is very challenging. You know, you may not have, we don't have an extra rheumatologist who can come in and cover some of those clinics, et cetera. So I think that's something where the sooner we start having robust conversations amongst all of us and come up with a plan, the more successful we'll be because there clearly will be some. So we don't have clarity around that that part of the puzzle. And, and then the second question, which I, I know is discussed, talk to me about, uh, and budget's already been set, so that, that's always kind of a thing, and it makes me think about challenger disaster and, and launch fever, is, uh, is it true that there will be no template reductions during the launch out of this? We are actually revisiting that question since okay. I've been back from leave. So okay. uh, we're gathering data um, and best practice from other organizations to see, you know, I think no one thinks that we can see the same number of patients in clinic in the same amount of time with the same amount of resources. That is just, you know, that math does not add up. And so there's a number of mitigation strategies. We've discovered from other organizations, you know, by which some of it may be template reduction, some of it may be moving patients to before they arrive, to evenings, to weekends. There's chart abstraction that places do to make the day of go much faster so that you know, you're not trying to recreate your entire note from next gen in Epic while at the same time seeing into Novo patient. So Rachel and I were actually just discussing that, so I'm hoping the chairs will be able to pull all of the various chiefs and frontline providers. Um, the mitigation strategy is likely gonna look different for each area, because each service line is structured differently, people's admin time looks different, the flexibility is different depending on if your service line is 20 people versus one person. Um, but I think we'll likely need to do a combination of all of those things to be successful. Okay, wonderful. We look forward to hearing back on that as it directly affects finance. Yeah, uh, and part of I would definitely like to see what the plan is for that. Absolutely. Okay, thank you. Trustees? Dr. Maria, thank you very much for your thank report. You. Thank you. Thank you. Doing well on time. Um, so with that, we close out item B, and we open into item F. Uh, I'm happy to introduce uh, Dr. Nick Nelson, uh, a colleague and a friend and the medical director of the Human Rights Clinic. Everyone, this is Dr. Nelson, and uh, can we queue up Dr. Nelson's slide? He has to advance slide. Got it. Uh, does he have a clicker? So uh, Dr. Nelson uh, wrote a very nice narrative. It begins on page 71 of your, uh, of your packet. 
and uh, just a little bit of a, a framework for this. Um, you know, as, as we as we go down the quality mission, and we and, and again, let me go broken record, and we talk about the elements of quality. Let's do that again. Steep, safety, timeliness, efficiency, effectiveness, equity, and patient-centeredness. Equity is something which is part and parcel with what we do here. But, but we, we have, we're, we're, we're still striving to find the measurables. Now, in Dr. Barbaria's house, we have the prime measurements, which do that. Uh, we selected this one because it goes exactly to the heart of what we're trying to do uh, in our organization, which is to be more equitable. And uh, uh, after we hear Dr. Nelson's report, I don't, I don't think anyone will challenge that we're striving to do good things here. Nick? Cool. Thank, you, Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a real honor to be allowed to uh, address the board. Um, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about our Human Rights Clinic, which I've had the privilege to direct since 2012. Uh, we've just got a new logo. This is it. We like it particularly because it was painted by one of our patients who's right here on the left. That's one of our medical assistants on the right. Um, and okay, so I'm going to start off and just, I'm going to introduce the clinic, talk about what we're doing, give you some numbers, and then talk about where things are going. I'm going to try to keep it really brief so that there's plenty of time for questions, and I can elaborate on anything afterwards. Um, so this clinic was founded in 2001 uh, by Thad Brodowski, who was actually in the Puerto Rico residency track here, and later a faculty member. Um, Amina Ahmed, who was a physician who worked a lot with Physicians for Human Rights, which is a national organization that does asylum uh, medicine, out of the, um, this component of forensic evaluation. So the, the, the clinic was founded basically to provide preferential access to Puerto Rico for torture survivors. And what Amina added was expert forensic evaluation and testimony in federal immigration court. Um, I took the clinic over in 2012. It was a, a little more sporadic before, and then we started doing a weekly clinic. Um, as of 2016, we've had two doctors working in the clinic. Um, in, two, in 2018, we've got seven people who regularly do our uh, forensic evaluations, including a pediatrician, which has been a big leap forward because that was a huge unmet need previously. Um, we just moved this year to the Eastwell campus to co-locate with the Refugee Clinic, which is over there, which for those of you who aren't familiar with it, is a completely different clinic that does uh, federally mandated newcomer screening for uh, refugees who are resettled in Alameda County. Um, so our mission is to serve as a medical home and to provide forensic medical services for survivors of torture who are living in Alameda County. Um, so what we do is, you know, we still carry on the original mission of the clinic, which is to provide longitudinal trauma-informed primary care for displaced and traumatized people. Um, we have been increasingly active over the last two years in developing guidelines for use within AHS. So we have a newcomer screening protocol that's now in use throughout K6 to screen for diseases that are endemic to a lot of the countries that our patients come from. Uh, we do training, teaching, and outreach at other institutions and within the community. But the, thing, uh, the real goal of the book, and I think what makes AHS such a special institution for, for having this clinic, is these forensic medical, psychological, and gynecological evaluations that we do for survivors of torture. You really can't get that anywhere else. Um, in the Bay Area, particularly in the Bay Area. Um, and we also provide expert witness in uh, federal immigration court. I just finished testifying over the phone for about an hour in the case of a patient that I saw about a year ago this afternoon. Um, and so this is a unique service in Northern California. There's another clinic in San Diego that does something like what we do, um, but, but there's only about 12 or 15 clinics nationwide that, that, that do this kind of work, so NHS is very special in this. Um, our patient demographics are really interesting and profoundly reflect the demographics of displaced people in Alameda County. So almost half of our patients are uh, indigenous, non-speaking people from the islands of Guatemala who often don't speak Spanish at all. 
and we are really going to love the new modern English interpreter that we just hired, who I used for the first time last time I was in Quebec. Um, I was elated. Uh, and the other half are from Eritrea. Um, and then we get a smattering of people who are largely from Africa and Central and South America. Then we have some people from, from the Far East and all over the place. Um, so we, we do a lot of different things outside of the conference of the clinic. These are uh, two of our evaluators, Tenzin Levy and Alex Diaz. Tenzin's actually here today down at the Mason Bay Detention Facility in Bakersfield, California, where we went a couple of weekends ago to see um, four asylum seekers who were detained down there. Uh, we, in this very room, did a CME event in training for local clinicians in forensic, psychological, and medical evaluations. We had about 100 people. This is one of our nurse practitioners, Emily Taylor, uh, teaching the group. Um, this is the multidisciplinary group that we got together for it. So we've got, on the, on the far right, we have uh, a human rights lawyer from an NGO in San Francisco, and uh, the person next to her is the director of a local psychology residency program that's based in Berkeley, and then the rest of us are people who work in the clinic here. Um, and Alex Diaz on the left there has been particularly active in doing these great community outreach events. So that's him on the left. In the middle is a former eligibility clerk, Susanna, and on the right is a second year resident who's doing her continuity clinic with us in Human Rights Clinic. And then I have the Human Rights Memphis festivities in the food bar underneath the big AHS tent. We've been getting a lot of media attention recently. So um, a couple of years ago, we got, a, we got an award from the International Rescue Committee for our collaborations with them. There was recently a story in the opinion, which is the largest uh, Spanish-speaking, largest Spanish-language newspaper in the United States about us. Um, we have an appearance on the Commonwealth Club on a panel. There was an NPR story. Um, Alex Diaz got interviewed on the movie soon about the Caravan. And um, I was on a panel a little while ago for the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. So we've been getting a decent amount of recognition, especially uh, in the last two years for some bizarre reason. Um, so future directions. Uh, we are, um, we, we, I think the, the next big step for us is going to be to secure that uh, source of outside funding. There's a lot of money for the kind of stuff that we're doing. We just haven't had the bandwidth to, to really work on getting funding from the office of refugee resettlement, so we're working on that. Um, I think the, the real project for the next year or two that's been super excited about working with Polygon is integrating with the East Mountain Refugee Clinic and sharing best practices, unifying our service lines so that we're really a one-stop shop with displaced people in Alameda County. Um, we have a couple of research programs going on. I can tell you about the details if you're interested. And we're increasingly participating in national level organizations. So our, the training we had here was recognized by Physicians for Human Rights as equivalent to their training. And so all those people got to join their asylum volunteer network. And we're, uh, we're actually a member of the National Consortium of Torture Treatment Programs, which encompasses the other 16 clinics in the US that do stuff like we do. Um, and we're going to keep going with our outreach and advocacy efforts. So there's more information in the handout. I'm happy to answer any questions anybody has, but I want to be respectful of your time. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Nick. That's a great presentation. Nice and tight. Great. Trustees, open up for questions or discussion or dialogue. Trustee Jensen. Thank you. That was an excellent presentation. It's so exciting to hear about how we're, we're meeting the needs of uh, meeting unmet needs that are in, even recognizing the unmet needs in our community of the very diverse Alameda County community. My question is, um, I have two questions. The first is how do, typically does someone get referred or, or come into the clinic? And the second question is, the, um, is your numbers? What are the, what's the, the participation? I noticed at the beginning you said 10 sessions a month, and I'm not sure what that Yeah, good question. 10 sessions. Yeah. So people, the way people really thought there's a, there's a network of um, immigration attorneys in Alameda County who do pro bono or low bono or grant funded work. 
and we're on all of the Rolodex, I guess no one has a Rolodex anymore, we're on all their iPhones. Um, so mostly we get referrals from lawyers who have a specific question and say, you know, does this guy have PTSD? Is this a cigarette burn scar? You know, is this a bullet wound? Whatever. Um, and uh, so, so that's the, 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 the predominance of our referrals. We also get internal referrals from AHS and from organizations like IRC that aren't for forensic stuff, but are just for people who have a history of torture and you need a medical home where people understand what that means and, and how to take care of people who've had those kind of experiences. Um, and we had one dude who found us through Google and just showed up and was like, I need a forensic evaluation. And we were like, uh, yeah, you do. So, um, so that's happened once. Uh, and then the second question was about members. Um, we, so we do about 10 and a half days of clinic a month, including off-site stuff, like going to the detention centers um, and whatnot. And uh, we see, I see about, I do about 50 of these evaluations a year. Alex does about 25, and there are other providers between them probably do another 25 to 30. Um, and the physicians we realize keep statistics on the success rate of asylum applications based, we have, based on whether they have a, a medical evaluation or not. And the success rate across the country, although it varies wildly by catchment area, is cumulatively about 56% if you have not been seen by a physician, and it's about 85% if you had. You have, and of the people whose outcomes we know in our clinic are, the success rate of asylum claims of people who have been through our clinic is more than 95%. Oh, wow. Dr. J. Thank you again, Nick. Uh, you know, I happened to visit uh, Lebanon before I learned about your clinic where they are hosting the Syrian refugee. And uh, I know that uh, some of my colleagues instituted something called conflict medicine, right? Mm -hmm. Which is totally different. So I'd like you to share, uh, I know you have shared with me some stories. What are the challenges? Why do these patients, or why can't we <coughs> or primary care provider can take regularly care of these patients? What are like some of the challenges just so? Yeah, I mean, I think I, you know, the, the stuff that you have to do for people is, I think, within the skills of a lot of primary care providers, a lot of it's just about awareness. So there have been some, some two interesting studies that I'll cite. Uh, one, there have been a number of epidemiological studies looking at the prevalence of torture among people who are born in other countries in outpatient clinics in coastal regions in the U.S. And those are the only inclusion criteria. So that includes people who are born in Eritrea, and it includes people who are born in Switzerland, right? Um, the prevalence of torture in outpatients who were born outside of the U.S. is between 5 and 11 percent in all these studies. Mm. So when you talk to those people who have a history of torture and are in primary care, and you ask them if their doctor knows about their history, 80 percent of them say no. And when you ask them why, 80 percent of those people say that it's because the doctor never asked. And so, so, so there's, there's that side of things, right? I mean, I'll tell you a story like, that, that speaks to that, which is a couple of years ago, this guy's still my patient, actually. A couple of years ago, we had a patient who came in complaining of uh, abdominal pain and precipitous weight loss. And he obviously lost a lot of weight and he had abdominal pain. And so right every internist do something, where's the primary cancer? But, you know, so we'd CT'd him up and down and he got an endoscopy and a colonoscopy and every other test you can think of. No one found anything wrong with him. He left the hospital with no diagnosis. Came back two months later, he got all the tests that he didn't get the first time. Left the hospital with no diagnosis. Came back to clinic four times after that until someone who was smarter than I was specifically to show the bomber and specifically ask him whether he had been tortured or not, at which point it turned out that he had this fluid torture history. He's, he's from Yemen and he had been back to try to resolve a land dispute with the government and had been imprisoned and tortured for like two months. And all of his somatic symptoms were ultimately referable to the specific things that had happened to him in those two months. And it was, so it was just an awareness you know, that, that, that delayed this diagnosis for so long. Um, 
and then, so there's the, there's the torture and trauma side of things, and then there's just the straight up, you know, nerdy internal medicine, infectious disease stuff, right? Like, I didn't know when I was in medical school, or even when I was in residency at Highland, that I would regularly be treating schistosomiasis in my primary care clinic, but I do, because I screen for it, because if you don't catch it, it can cause cirrhosis and bladder cancer, and it's endemic in Eritrea and a lot of other countries where our patients come from. Um, so, I mean, you know, the other thing to say about that is that the people who are in a refugee clinic are, are getting a federally mandated health screening. But if you're an asylum seeker, not only is there no health screening when you come to the country, but when you get granted asylum, no one says, okay, now off to the refugee clinic, boom. They just say, congratulations, you got asylum, apply for your green card in two years, you know? And so we see people in the refugee clinic where the lawyer sends us to some of the tests because they want a forensic evaluation, but it turns out they have undiagnosed tuberculosis or HIV or strong neurodiasis or whatever. So, um, I, don't, I don't know if that answers the question. I have a question. Trustee Hernandez. Um, could you describe, and thank you for the work that you do, it's just amazing, uh, it's very inspiring. Um, how successful are you at transitioning a patient that came to you who maybe needed all of these evaluations and then gets uh, well enough or along the process enough how, how easy is it to transfer them to another physician? Yeah, that's a great question. That's, a, that's one that I haven't really figured out to my satisfaction yet. Um, I just say, to preface, I just say, you know, uh, I would like to thank AHS for supporting this. It's a real, it was, this is not something I anticipated doing as a doctor, and it's, it's been extraordinarily fulfilling and fascinating for me. Um, so, I haven't quite figured that out. Um, it's important that we do figure that out because all these people can't be on my panel and Alex's panel. Um, we kind of have two types of patients. We have the ones who show up for the evaluation and already have a doctor somewhere else or, or live too far away to want to come here regularly and we just never see them again after we do the evaluation. And then we have people where we have this incredibly intense experience with them. They come back for three or four sessions and there's like a bonding thing that happens and then neither of us want them to go anywhere else. And yeah. so it's my opinion is definitely oversubscribed by people with particular last names. Uh, for that I have a question. Um, thank you for the profound work your team uh, does. With the pediatric population that you have over the years, have you seen any? I mean, is it um, changing? How, how, how much, what, what's the proportion of um, under 18 that you see? Yeah, it's, we're trying to get the word out that we have a pediatrician now. Because we used to get referrals and we, we kept telling people, like, we're interested in you know, cut off at about 16 and we can't really do that. Um, and so now that we're telling people that we've got a pediatrician, we're getting more referrals. So far, all of them are from the Northern Triangle in Central America. Um, and they're all fleeing drug and gang violence. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I'm not actually, I tell you that, we've had one uh, training kit. And I, I think it relates to, you know, the migration routes are really interesting and different. So the people who come to us from Central America are often on the low end of the socioeconomic ladder and they get here on foot and by bus and the slow way. And the people from Eritrea are more often higher up the socioeconomic ladder because you can't get out of Eritrea if you're not because you have to be able to pay the bribes, you have to be able to get a plane ticket. Um, Etc. So, so for, I guess that that's probably one of the reasons that we don't see. I think the is that, like in Eritrea, for example, most of the violence is like political repression, and people under the age of ten are not generally subject to that in a meaningful way, at least in that country. So they're not usually fleeing. But the situation for young, especially young male kids, is totally different in Central America. Um, so, yeah. But so the demographics are, are, are overwhelmingly central. So the northern triangle and the side work. And do you anticipate, I mean, with the forced separation at the border and all these, uh, you know, thousands of kids um, 
Is that something that you anticipated at some point in time? I don't know where they probably, you know, being spread out over the country where yeah. but, um, Definitely. I mean, I think a lot, you know, a lot of those kids are, many of these kids will eventually end up with family members in East Bay. Mm -hmm. And they were, their, their cases will go on. And I, I wouldn't, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't say this is going to be but I wouldn't be surprised if down the road we're getting asked to do an increasing number of evaluations both of like the psychological trauma that people suffered in their country of origin, but also of the trauma that they suffered at the hands of ICE. Because there's, I mean, we're going to be feeling the psychosomatic ripples of this human rights violation that's been happening on the southern border for decades. Uh, and those people are going to be coming, or hopefully going to be coming to clinics like ours, because they're going to have access to them. That was another question that, that I wanted to follow up with. What would you say is the length of time that you need to see patients to maybe stabilize that psychosocial issue that obviously comes from trauma. I, yeah, it's extraordinarily variable, and it also depends on the services they are available. So for example, like, we used to have a co-located behavioral health training, which we no longer do because of changes in the behavioral health program. And when we had that, it meant you know, every visit was a, was a psych visit. And so you know, they'd see me, and then they'd see the behavioral health psychologist, and it, it really expedited things a lot. It, it was a little behavioral health psychologist for that who's, who's like, uh, metric for success was that the patient was participating in Zumba, like he knew that he had succeeded, you know, so we had a better view of Zumba work. Um, but uh, it, it just depends a lot on the patient. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary how people vary in their resilience. You know, you see people who have been through stuff that I can't imagine going through who are like, yeah, well, you know, it's over now. I feel great. I'm here. You know, things are fine. And then you see maybe got a mission earlier, the younger guy, like, I've been seeing that guy every three, I've been to his house, I've seen it every three months for the last, or more often for the last five, six years, and he's still a mess. I mean, he's still profoundly altered by the experiences that he had. So, what a variability. Nick, can you uh, list first your, your top concerns for the sustainability of this, or your top concerns in general for Human Rights Clinic? Yeah, um, I'd say my, my top concern right now is to figure out how to um, bring up all the services that are being provided in the Refugee Clinic and the Human Rights Clinic to the same standard, and make sure that we've got the kind of access and capacity that we need so that we can go to all of our providers and network and say we're open for business. You know, you got if you're if you if you've got someone who's been forcibly displaced or has been tortured or you're worried about any of those things and you just want them assessed, please send them to us. If you want a forensic evaluation, please send them to us. Um, I think that's that's my biggest concern right now. I think, and, and I think the answer concern to that is figuring out how to get uh, someone to give us a, a very large amount of money. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I'm willing to name the clinic after basically anybody. So, so those are the those are the main things on my mind. Now, I mean, obviously, I mean, I, the thing that I don't have any control over is just what's going to happen with uh, federal immigration policy. Because I don't, I'm like, you know, it's interesting. The refugee clinic, the number of refugees that the, that the State Department has admitted has dropped exponentially, and so the refugee clinic is experiencing dwindling volumes. And that's going to be a threat to their existence because they depend directly on revenue from the state to conduct those medical evaluations. But for us, like, I don't care if they build the wall. There's still going to be plenty of people coming into the country um, because most of them, I mean, a lot of people come in and say, well, they'll come even if there is a wall. But all of our trains come here on airplanes. Actually, that's not strictly true. We've had three people now who stayed away on foot trips to Central America and then walked here, which is pretty incredible if you imagine that. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, so, so I don't worry that we're going to run out of patients to see. I just worry about the people who we're going to be seeing and I worry about what they're going to have been through before they get to us and, and what their prognosis is going to be in the immigration courts here. Amazing work, Nick, uh, as, as you know, serving all. And I'll, I'll, I'll end with a story. 
Um, my sister is an immigration lawyer and uh, with a focus in asylum, and uh, she takes care of a lot of patients who've, uh, who've suffered torture. And one night she called me and she goes, hey, do you know this Nick Nelson guy? And I said, yeah, I've known Nick forever. He go, she goes, Nick uh, helped me save the life of one of her torture patients and got this patient asylum. And she said, Nick and the Human Rights Clinic saved my patient's, saved my client's life. And uh, I don't remember the details of that. I remember you wondering, is there another bouquet who was calling you? Um, but uh, it was, uh, it, it, she, she, my sister was profoundly affected and I think she continues to send work your way. That's a great, thank you for that follow-up. She's never told me that actually, but um, the follow-up with that patient is uh, he was a PA back in his home country in Central Africa and he wants to go to medical school and we've been like correspondent that email. I just bought him his MCAT books. So no, I got them from I got them from the med student because I got them from I bought him. Oh you bought it you bought him MCAT from the Nice. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. We close item F and we move into item G, patient safety and regulatory affairs. This is included in the packet. Uh, I'll, I'll, for the open mic, note, note that some discussions were made in closed session. Um, uh, for open session, any comments by uh, board members on our discussion before? Okay, with that, we will close um, item G and we will move into item H, the True North Metric Dashboard Review. Uh, and uh, this uh, begins on uh, page uh, 87. Uh, just to remind you, this is a relatively new component of our of our standing reports. Um, I can't imagine how much time Tan Baird uh, spends building this. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful <laughs> report. It, it really uh, makes it robust. So this is always floating in the background for us, uh, for all QPSC, something for us to refer back to. Uh, Tan Baird, one thing that I would ask, which is, which was probably just, it just fell off the actual dashboard. Well, wasn't on this one, but it was in the big board report. So, so just uh, continuing, you, he, he, he drafts a, a wonderful narrative of, of the 13 items which we oversee here as part of our quality committee. Uh, trustees, any questions for uh, Dr. Hussein on his TNM dashboard? I think um, for those of us on uh, finance as well, it's really important to come to QPSC and see this too because often like in finance when we see the average length of stays so long, we keep hearing about the high acuity of operations and things, but it's also all of the operational stuff that that is there, so you kind of get that balanced view of you know what are what are some of these reasons. So thank you for that. I, I just want to call out uh, again. Um, readmissions is always every hospital's concern. Um, it's not high, but it's not meeting our target. And um, this may be an equity question. It might be again a procedure question, a culture question. What would you feel is the source of the readmissions? Is it the patient acuity? You know, all of that. Well, just uh, one, one thing that might be um, a little misleading um, about the True North Metric dashboard is that we always pick benchmarks that are um, push us further than the year before. So when we look at readmission rates across the country prior to the hospital, we uh, readmission reduction program implemented in CMS around 2005. National readmission rates were on the order of 
20 plus percent after the implementation of the uh, readmission reduction program. Um, nationally, that currently hovers around 15 percent. So we are actually currently at 12.5 percent, which is a pretty remarkable for a safety net organization. That said, um, it is our goal to continuously improve. And um, what you may not, um, uh, when we look at the data stratified, um, actually San Leandro and Almeida Hospital are at our goal. Island is slightly higher, but we know that the QD here is higher. So just to put that a little perspective, but I do know that um, there are robust efforts at all the hospitals um, where um, partnerships between care management providers and nursing leaders are reviewing cases uh, to actually determine what are some of the root causes. So we hope that the number will only get better. <laughs> okay. Trustees, any further questions on the TNF? No, I just want to compliment you on the narratives because they think they're, they're really well written and they certainly provide the necessary backup information Absolutely. That we need as we're looking through and it's, it's really been very, very helpful. Yeah, very rich narrative. We know it's not easy work for you at 2 in the morning or whatever you're talking about. <laughs> um, so, Tammy, I'll, I'll, I'll end this section as I end the other sections. Can you, for us, prioritize your top current concerns vis-a-vis -vis the TNM dashboard? Current concerns? Yeah. Um, so, uh, I saw the deep breath you took. Yeah. So I, I, uh, so I just in general, uh, not looking at the True North Metric dashboard, I think there is um, a tremendous amount of change occurring and in very good ways. We're trying to transform our organization. I think it's incumbent upon us as leaders to make sure that we communicate a message to our frontline staff that keeps them engaged in the transformation. So I hope that um, we are um, working very deliberately and diligently to constantly keep that vision alive and keep our frontline staff engaged in the hard work. So as we go through epic transformation, as we push uh, quality and safety, so that's something that I you know, hold ourselves all accountable so to. So number one, you put engagement? Yes. Got it. Yeah. Number two? Number two, um, related to that, I mean, looking at the True North Metric dashboard, I think our uh, two areas that we will focus um, are uh, around experience and access, and you've heard it. You heard it from our med staff about the, all the work that's going around around throughput, and so uh, it shows up on the dashboard. I know there's a lot of work there, um, and I think uh, around experience, we have quite a bit of heavy lifting to do around the patient experience. Um, but we are making um, uh, the good. I, I do want to mention. I always try to find the optimistic part, and that is that over the last two months, our patient experience scores have been trending in the right direction. And that is because people are getting the data. And more importantly, I think patient experience is about, in our busy day-to-day -day routine, taking a moment to find, um, to connect with the humanity of our patient and what we're doing, because that restores meaning to our work and it gives value to the patient. But we get really busy and it's easy to forget that. So we just have to try to build that into our work and our culture to take a pause and be reminded of the joy of our work. Do you feel satisfied that you have the resources and planning to navigate these concerns? Um, I think we are building the infrastructure. Uh, and I think I, I really do like the point that um, Paul had made that a lot of these resources are are human cap are 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 
our infrastructure, our um, our skills, our competencies. So I think we're building those things. So you guys all know when we ask that question, that's disguised as what do you need. <laughs> Please take advantage when we ask that question. <laughs> okay, I'll leave it at that for next time. Uh, trustees, any other questions? Uh, no, no, not you. Sorry. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, with that, we will close. Thank you, Dr. Singh. That will close item uh, H, and we'll move into item I, which is the planning calendar. This is on page 92 of your document. Let me note an error. Dr. Hussein was able to uh, pick out uh, the error in the, in the sequence of follow-up. Uh, I, I noted uh, that ambulatory, uh, 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 sorry, acute was set for, for February. I actually didn't take into consideration the, the cycle of the December, so it's actually behavioral health and um, uh, post-acute will be giving their report in February, and then acute will be subsequent. So we'll, we'll continue the sequence that we have then. Um, we will also continue in our miscellaneous open session reports. Um, uh, great, we thank Dr. Nelson for coming. We, we kind of have a smorgasbord of options that we have. We have um, a follow-up on provider wellness. This was this was Dr. Ballard's number two. I think it's 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 a really important thing. Provider wellness. Um, I, I I apologize, but we we have someone in the audience who knows this very well. Dr. Hearn, how are you doing? Welcome back. Do you think you uh, it, uh, there would be is one month enough time to prepare for a provider wellness uh, talk, or do you need more time or data? And, and by talk, you mean how? Uh, Fifteen minutes. Uh, yeah, as, as an update, or you know, we can put you a little bit further down there. Okay. I'd be happy to. Okay. Thank you very much. So we'll, uh, I, I will move provider wellness to to February, mm -hmm. and then. Um, uh, I'll move the transfer center away. So a little bit of adaptation so that for the miscellaneous talk, if you will, will be provider wellness. Upcoming, we have things like translations uh, services, the transfer center. And remember that, that uh, as we come towards June, we need to start talking about our true north metrics. Um, uh, we did it a little short last time, so we'll start at least a little bit of planning, maybe April, May, June, as we, as we go towards that. And then just to refresh, we previously had a nice dialogue on the role of of patient affairs, mm -hmm. uh, and it, uh, we raised the question, is there a role for a patient advocate or a patient at, on the board level? Uh, uh, we, we reminded ourselves that, that Dr. J will give us uh, uh, an update on the patient affairs landscape sometime later this year, maybe right before the, uh, uh, the break of the, of the fiscal year, maybe in May or June, and that will tell us what are our patient groups, how are we gathering data, how are we using all that. Um, so with that, we will close item I, unless there are any other comments. Any other requests from the trustees for reports that they'd like to hear? Okay. With that, uh, item J, legal counsel's report. Uh, the uh, board met in closed session and considered the <coughs> credential reports of each of the medical staffs and approved those providers who met the requirements set forth by each of the medical staffs to know where they're actually. Thank you, Council. With that, we close item J. Wow, five o'clock exactly. And, uh, um, uh, funny, uh, the, the president of, uh, of the board just texted me. He wouldn't be sad if I dragged out five or ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, we will close nonetheless. <laughs> we will close nonetheless. Thank you, QPS.